The announced song is 517, and we'll use that later in the service this evening as a song of encouragement. And as has already been mentioned, we're certainly delighted that God has blessed us with the opportunity to gather in the way that we are. The assemblies of the church are certainly so important, and we're thankful to be able to carry these out in a way that would glorify and please Him in every way. You probably have already noticed, as was mentioned in the bulletin this morning, questions and answers tonight. <clears throat> Our first lesson of this year, at least, that will in fact present various questions as, as well as the answers. And certainly, as you give thought to this opening slide, it's just a reminder that as far as when these lessons come around, it is you that select the topics. It is you that make the choices for the matters we'll be discussing. And as always, the box is back there in the foyer. So as always, if you have particular questions, feel free to just simply write those down. You don't have to sign your name. And in fact, I don't have any idea who wrote the particular questions that will serve as the questions for our study tonight. In Romans chapter 4, verse number 3, we read this statement. What saith the Scripture? It's always been a fascinating thing that as Paul addressed the Roman congregation, a congregation that had such access to learned individuals and many other sources of information, he turned to the Scriptures and insisted that they do the same. And that's our goal tonight. So I hope you have your Bible, and we'll be looking at a few passages of Scripture that address the following questions. Question number one is this one. And each of these, I should go ahead and say, is a verbatim writing of the question, so it's not my interpretation, but rather this is what the person has written. Personal testimonies in the worship services. Putting things on a personal level seems to help people see what God can do and has done for them. We never hear about those in today's lessons. Why? Very good question. The question, in fact, is one, again, that's entitled personal testimonies in the worship services. You can probably already tell that one of the things I would immediately point out in this one is perhaps a complete failure on my part. I need to start with a confession. I am not at all sure I have interpreted this question correctly. So I'm going to go ahead and say whoever wrote this one, if I completely don't address in any way that which you had in mind, just kindly reword it or put it back in the box shortly. But personal testimonies in the worship services. Several particular words were mentioned as a part of the question, and I've tried to use them to at least guide my thinking with the hope that I understand maybe what was intended. But the first thing I think we should perhaps notice is this one. I know that there is much to be said about the usage of personal testimonies in an explicit part of worship. It's my supposition that's not what's being discussed here, for that's not authorized as a part of worship. John 4.24 gives us no authority for that. But what I do think probably is meant is the latter part of that, that slide. So let me develop that. The person has indicated that Personal matters can often be a very helpful thing to not only see what God has done, but what He can continue to do. A word that perhaps is behind that thought is practicality. God intended His book to be terribly practical. 
He expects us to learn it, to read it, to understand it, and to apply what is found therein. He didn't write the Bible in such a way that it's this lofty presentation that though you might read it, you can't figure out what it says, and you certainly would have difficulty implementing it. That's not what He intended. Ephesians 3 verse 4 shouts loudly, When you read, you may understand my knowledge. Again, in the mystery of Christ. That being said, the Word of God, He intended to be practical and applicable. Hebrews 4.12 reminds us, The Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Well, that is the guide. At least my supposition in terms of the question leads me to about the middle of that slide. For the most part, every lesson that's delivered here is by and large my choice. There are occasions when individuals will make selections or at least will make assertions that certain kinds of lessons will be needful or appropriate. And I'm always trying to be responsive to those kind of requests, but the majority of the time, these particular topics of the lessons are by and large my choice. Now, our elders are always happy to make their guidance and suggestions, but for the most part, it is almost always mine. I try to select sermon topics that are balanced. It's my conviction. In 2 Timothy 3.16, the Word of God says, they're speaking about the nature of God and His Word. The Scriptures are God-breathed, but it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and for instruction in righteousness. Four things are highlighted. I think that a preacher would do well to try and have a balanced diet in terms of reproof. Not every sermon needs to be of reproof in character, but that needs to be a fairly often consideration. But sermons need to also have exhortation. They need to have a balance with regard, you see, to instruction in righteousness. All of that needs to be involved. And if there is failure, it rests solely and exclusively with me. You may notice at the bottom, I would at least offer these thoughts. This year already, from the start of January 1 until now, I do think we've had lessons that have certainly had a strong practical character to them. We had a sermon on the marvelous love of God and what that means for you and I. We didn't leave it in a lofty abstract state we said this is particularly what that suggests for you and I as we live. But not only that, we had sermons that helped us deal with how to quarrel with one another. How do you have a fuss and do that in a way that would be consistent with the Bible? I think that's rather practical. Furthermore, we had lessons dealing with what Naaman's mistakes meant for us. Could we make the same ones he made? And if we did, what would it suggest? We also had a sermon dealing with finances. In fact, we had four of them. We looked in some detail at how to put our money into a consideration from the Word of God in such a way that we're trying to be good stewards of what He's given us. Maybe the last things to notice. We've looked at disasters. We did that this morning. Marriage, divorce, and remarriage. We even cast a spotlight on the coming of Christ and particularly what that would mean in terms of the order of events. 
by no means am I trying to, to justify things, but I would simply offer, if there are topics that I have missed and there are particular matters that need to be addressed, would you write them on a piece of paper and put them in that box? Don't sign your name to them. And thus I can try to build lessons that would address those things. It is not my intent to do anything beyond Acts chapter 20. Paul said, in speaking of the preaching work that he had done, he said that everything that's been revealed in the Word of God is what he wanted to preach, and that's my goal. It's not my desire to cover up or leave anything out. So kindly, if you would, if that was the thrust of that question, please share with me or with the elders what particular topics you might have in mind, and we'll see if we can't take care of those in due course. Question number two. This question reads as follows. Are Christians to forgive if someone does not repent? If someone has wronged you and they never ask for forgiveness, are we to forgive them anyway? And verses as a part of that question listed are these. Ephesians 4.32, Matthew 18, verses 21 and 22, and Luke 17, verses 3 and 4. Another very good question. You can already see some of the thoughts I would ask that you identify. What is meant by the topic of forgiveness? Forgiveness is the descriptive word for a state in which individuals are in unison and in harmony one with another. And I've tried to extend the definition in such a way that that concept of reconciliation is a vital part of it. There has been something that has caused a point of separation or division. And these, both of them, have a desire to arrive back at a point in which they have been reconciled. Those differences have been put long behind them. With that idea in mind, you may go ahead and appreciate the following. There are many things in this life that could be a part of that which leads to separation. Sometimes, in fact many times, it is a difference in perception. One person feels as if another has slighted him or her or has wronged him or her when in fact the first person not only never intended it that way but has no idea that the second person has felt any offense. And on many occasions when the second one does take the liberty, may I talk to you a moment? Could I just speak with you? What you did... I took it as if the impression and lesson you were giving was this, so that the person could then be given the opportunity to quickly say, I had no such idea in mind, that was not my intent, and I am sorry that I offended you. Would you please forgive me? Many times the issues that separate individuals may well fall into a category exactly like that one. But that's not to say all of them do. You can well see on this slide, Jesus gave us as Christians a rather clear-cut approach to a situation like this. If your brother has offended you, if, you, if he has trespassed against you, this is what you must do. Go to that person alone. Matthew 18, verse 15. Go to that person alone. Don't share it on Facebook. Don't share it on the Internet. Don't bring it to the elders. It doesn't belong in their purview first. Go to that person. Hopefully that person will have an attitude such that they too will wish to, for peace to exist. 
Jesus says, if that happens, you've gained your brother. But notice, if they do not, and if there really has been a wrong in place, and there is no repentance forthcoming, take a witness or two with you. Again, Matthew 18, verses 15 and following. But with that in mind, he then gives another step, and he, of course, it's to bring it to the church. If still there really has been a sin or wrong in place, and it has not been made right, you, of course, bring it to the church and let it be dealt with in that fashion. Finally, of course, if this person persists in that way, which again is a wrong thing and will stand before God in judgment, you have to withdraw fellowship. You've got to garner that person's attention, hopefully to the extent that you consider them as a heathen and a publican. That text, and again, the book of Matthew, probably brings us to note the following. That likely still was not the thrust of the person's question. May I again ask us that we note, if someone has wronged you and they never ask for forgiveness, are we to forgive them anyway? Not only does God not expect you to, you cannot. If forgiveness is this which two parties desire a state of reconciliation, it matters not how strongly one person may desire it. It matters not at all how much one may desire it. If the other doesn't, you can never have that full and exquisite state of harmony between the two. Would you turn with me to Luke 17? The Lord's statement in that chapter puts it in the following way. Luke 17, verse number 3 is the only verse that at, the ta- at this time we need. Take heed to yourselves, if thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. Now the Lord put before that statement, forgive him, that little conditional clause, if he repent. If he doesn't repent, you cannot forgive in the full sense of what one would desire. Because again, repentance has to be desired on both parties. It's not simply a one-way mechanism. Could we at least ask it this way? Wouldn't it be interesting if God demanded that you and I do something that even He is unwilling to do? Will God forgive anybody who does not repent? The answer is no. In Acts 17, verses 30 and 31, He there explicitly says that He commands all men everywhere to repent. And if they won't, if they refuse, then Jesus Himself highlighted Did he not? Nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Now that statement, again found in Luke's gospel account, reminds us, as much as you and I might wish to be at full peace and harmony, you you realize with me that we could not fully appreciate an element in forgiveness if that person is unwilling to repent because they don't want the state of peace. They've made that clear enough. I would be quick to hasten this, though. Even if they will not ask for repentance, can you and I hold grudges? Can we harbor ill will? Can we maintain a spirit of unkindness? The answer to all of that is no. It may break our heart that they will not ask for forgiveness, that they seemingly are completely unwilling to admit any kind of error or sin, But even then, we still cannot harbor ill will to them. Even Jesus wouldn't do that. 
On the cross, He prayed, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. When all the while that forgiveness was not forthcoming until they asked for repentance 50 days later when that Pentecost rolled around. And so uh, as you and I close that particular slide, one of the verses the person mentioned was Ephesians 4.32. Be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Now that passage was written to the church admittedly, but nonetheless we have a host of other passages reminding us that we must not be those who dislike or hate others to the point where we hope they're not saved or we act to them in a way that might put a stumbling block before them. I hope our dealing with that question on forgiveness has been a very helpful thing and may we never forget Jesus said, if they repent, forgive them. Question number three. This question, also a very strongly worded question, it reads as follows. Putting God first in all things. Verses referenced are Matthew 6, verses 31 to 33, Luke 14, 26, and Matthew 10, verses 37 to 39. And the question reads explicitly this way, Doesn't this mean everything and everyone? In today's world, people seem to be putting things and people before God. What about those who do not attend worship services because a family member is sick or has died, or they have to take care of their animals in some way? Do you see the thrust of the question? The person is asking, even in circumstances wherein, let's say, a family member is ill or sick, perhaps even direly so, or maybe there has been such severity that death has come, if you select to not attend the services, does that mean in those cases that you are in fact not putting God first? Does that mean in those cases then that you're behaving in a way that would not be consistent with the teaching of the Bible? A very good question. Let's develop some particular thoughts about it. Let's take the first part of the question first. Doesn't this mean the person writes... Everything and everyone. The lesson text for tonight was Matthew 6, 33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. That does mean exactly what it says. That does mean then the Lord must be placed first in every regard and in every way and in comparison to any other thing. Now the development of that is a little bit more involved or at least a little bit more interesting because each one of us are unique and different and our life circumstances are certainly distinct one person to the other. I would at least urge this caution. It would certainly be very vital to say that you and I must be mindful to not impress our thought of faithfulness on somebody else whose life circumstances might be very different than our own. That person who doesn't hardly ever miss, but it here on a given occasion. You might be quick to point a finger and say, well, so-and-so wasn't here. Well, where was so-and-so? When all the while we may not have any idea of the fullness of their circumstances that may have prompted that absence, that may have prompted that circumstance. That leads me to share a few more thoughts. Is it not the case that the worship services of the church are of vital importance. And I might say the next question is going to ask us even more about these. 
And we take very seriously the attendance at every worship service. We all should. God expects us to. But what might we say then about those circumstances wherein an individual is not here? Well, the thoughts you'll see on that slide are these. So what about illness? If a person's got the flu, does he expect me still to come? What if an individual is deathly ill? Does he still demand me be here in an effort to show that I put him first? The answer to that is no. In fact, it would in some way be an unloving thing for me to come here and infect all of you with the flu if I've got it. It would be a somewhat inconsiderate thing for me to do in a case like that one. But by the same token, you can think of other examples, no doubt. It might well be that a person's health could be sufficiently challenged that for them to come not only might lead to even greater health difficulties for them, but it could ultimately lead to even more dire circumstances than that. God demands that you and I place Him first. And He demands that we be good stewards of those blessings He has given to us. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 2. To be a good steward of those things leads me to ask you at the bottom, perhaps to consider some of these ideas. The worship services of the church are sufficiently vital that our absence ought to definitely be a rare thing. Our not being here should be a very unusual event. We ought to be able to be counted on to be here every single time, if at all possible, that we can be. To say that somewhat differently, if we ever choose not to be here, and by that I mean circumstances permit me to come, it's just that I make the choice that I'm going to do something else instead that is just as demanding upon my person than I have sinned. I have blatantly and openly sinned, and unless I receive forgiveness from that, I'm going to hell. That's just what the Bible teaches. Now, to say that in that fashion... The New Testament presents it that way, and it does so in language that starts in Hebrews 10, verse 25. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together is the manner of some is. I don't know how much plainer the Holy Spirit could have made it. Don't forsake the assemblies. Now, I realize on a Sunday night I'm speaking before those who already appreciate that teaching. But there are so many, it would seem, in our world who do not appreciate it as strongly as it's worded and as thoroughly as it's worded. Let's close that slide like this. When you and I then think about the attendance at the worship services of the church, sometimes the particulars that are stated in light of it, we can come up with a lot of thoughts that might allow us to try and justify it. May I urge a great deal of caution on any attempt at any such justification. And again, let the mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. If you and I are to have the mind of Christ, how easy would it have been for Him to have justified His absence from the cross? I just don't feel like it. It's going to hurt. Talk about that kind of pain. And can you and I on a Wednesday night, maybe I don't feel the best in the world, but could I not attend some worship services? Could I not find that opportunity within myself to not only be present, but to encourage others? It isn't just about me. For after all, in Hebrews 10, 24, let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works, 
that brother or sister who's struggling more than I, my presence may be the very element most needful to encourage them in such a way that in the days ahead, they may be better equipped to be faithful to the Lord. One of the greatest mistakes that it seems that you and I can make when it comes to the worship services is to think they're all about me, when in fact they are not about me, nor are they about you. But our purpose for coming is to worship God, to serve Him. And as a side benefit, we are blessed and edified, and we certainly can do the same for others. The question that was asked there... I believe one would need to be mighty cautious to ultimately make a full judgment without knowing all the facts. But the next question, I think, will allow us to discuss this even more. For this question also discusses this point, and it reads like this. Members who refuse to attend all services, not because they are unable, but because they just don't want to. Shouldn't elders as overseers of a congregation know why they're not attending? And if not, because they don't want to, then start disciplinary actions? Isn't that a good question? You can again see the idea. If there is someone who makes the claim to be a Christian and faithful at that, but clearly does not attend the services as what one would expect and as the New Testament teaches, do the elders have responsibility here? And if upon appropriate rebuke, the person does not make any repentance or change, should withdrawal of fellowship be pursued? I've put a few thoughts together with the hope that we can appreciate again, perhaps in an extended way, what we just began with that previous question. First of all, is it a serious thing? Sure it is. Sure it is. And for that reason... Give some thought to that first thing at the top. The worship services are for our good. You know, God is all-powerful. He truly is awesome. Does He need me to be here for worship services? Well, surely God doesn't need it. But does He know it's for my benefit that I'm here? Sure He does. And does He know then that it will work for my ultimate edification and for the mutual benefit of His church if I'm here? Sure He does. And that's why He gave the commandment. And therefore, if I disobey Him by being absent, then I not only have injured or hurt myself spiritually, I've impacted others. Maybe you and I should keep in mind that there's no less than 25 things in the New Testament that we do with others in worship. And if I'm absent, that means there's at least 25 things that He's commanded me to do that I'm not doing. That includes everything from singing. I can't sing if I'm not here. I can't edify others if they're here and I'm not. And that list goes on and on. So the point is, it's vital that we be here if we can be. But about the middle of that slide... You now notice this. It's certainly possible that there are extenuating circumstances that someone cannot be here. Just a couple of weeks ago, for this Sunday evening service, I will, I'll use myself as an example. I felt it appropriate that I not be here. I was running a very high fever late Sunday afternoon, and as the time came to leave, rather than take the chance to infect any of you, with Denise taking rather serious care of me with such a high fever, 
we stay home. I think that was perfectly justified. I believe that not only was appropriate, it was the better thing to do. There could be circumstances where individuals are unable to be here. The God of heaven knows those circumstances. In 1 Corinthians, in fact, we read rather powerfully in chapter 11 of that book, if you come together, when you come together, God knows if you cannot. But may I be quick to say, as you can see about the middle of that slide, are there individuals who call themselves Christians who could attend more than they do but don't? We all know the answer to that yes. The evidence is just too overwhelming. And that's tragic and it's sad for they're missing so much. They're making choices to absent themselves from the worship services and or the Bible studies. And their knowledge of the Word of God suffers. Their encouragement of others suffers. And they themselves are more a stumbling block in those regards. As sad as that is, it nonetheless continues to be a fact. For that reason, we can now ask this. Do the elders have obligation in this regard? Absolutely they do. That's no different than any other sin. If a member of the congregation is found to be a gossiper, the elders have obligation, for example, to try and find out and assist that person to understand the gravity of the moment. Well, this is just another sin. To highlight that, would you notice with me the wording of Hebrews 10, verse 26? I quoted verse 25 a moment ago, but I purposely stopped at that time, inviting verse 26 to come now. After speaking about not forsaking the assembling, look at how that sentence goes onward. For if we sin willfully, did you notice? The person who blatantly chooses not to come has committed a willful sin. After that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. Christ's blood won't cleanse them because they don't want it to be cleansed. Verse 27, But a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. Listen to how serious that it is to willfully be absent from the services. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye? Shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace? Could I invite you to notice the fourth word of verse 26? Is it a sin to willfully miss the services? The Hebrew writer says it is. Will a sin condemn you? We know they will. Any sin will. So may we take seriously the injunction to be faithful in our attendance and to be here any and every time we possibly can be. Back to the matter of the elders. The question I ask, shouldn't elders as overseers know why they're not attending? Absolutely. They should ask them. They should have conversation with them to find out there could be some deeper spiritual problem and the attendance is just the surface issue of it. The elders need to know that so they can offer proper guidance or wisdom or counsel. But then it goes on to say, 
if the person refuses or at least continues along this line of behavior, even after being brought to that person's attention, should they start disciplinary action? That would not be an unreasonable thing. Because after all, if that person has at least illustrated that, certainly you would want a great deal of encouragement and a great deal of insistence and a great deal of mindful attention to what may be involved in it. But to say it seriously, that's what that passage you and I just noted teaches. Question number five. This question about elders or deacons. When an elder or deacon becomes too ill to do the work or just stops doing the work, shouldn't they resign or be asked to resign? I suppose the thought behind that question could well be that there has for quite some time been, I think, an understood appreciation that once you put a man into the office of an elder, he's an elder for life. We kind of think about it almost like the Supreme Court justices in our land. Once you appoint them, you can never understand any circumstance whereby they would not occupy that position. Maybe that's what's behind this question. But at the very least, it goes on to say, what if a man becomes too ill? What if he becomes sufficiently sick that he is unable to do that work anymore? Now, the second part of it is more troubling. What if a man isn't sick, he just isn't doing the work? Then should he be asked to resign? Can he be removed from office? Well, the matters on this slide are such that Brother Gary really read for us the first seven verses of 1 Timothy 3 this morning. If you'd like to look back to that, I, there's a word or two I would point out to your consideration. 1 Timothy 3, starting in verse number 1. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth the good work. And it's easy enough to tell from those verses that follow, again, that the office of an elder, for example and for that matter too, that of a deacon, they're not merely figurehead positions. There's a lot of work that goes with both of them. It is an ongoing and very time-consuming and rather demanding set of activities to watch over a flock, to be concerned with their spiritual welfare, for instance, in the case of the elder, to make sure you make those decisions consistent with the church as the Lord would approve it. It's a very demanding thing. A great deal of time spent not only in conversation with others, but in study and in prayer and in the assessment of the Word of God. A deacon, of course, serves beneath elders. And they are given tasks to do and they are given responsibilities. They too have a great deal of work and of effort to carry out. While you're thinking about that matter, go ahead and jump over to verse 13. We just mentioned the office of a bishop. Notice verse 13. They that have used the office of a deacon. Here are two offices which the God of heaven has not only authorized, but He has showered them with great opportunity and great blessing in the ongoing work of the church. Having said that, now we can say, so what if a man occupying one of those offices perhaps due to health reasons, is unable to do the work, should he be asked to resign? Yes, 
it is the will of God, the work be done. And it would seem, at least it would seem to me, that if he appreciates that fact, he would not be opposed to being asked to step down. In fact, in all likelihood, he will understand it himself and he will resign. He will be more than happy to appreciate that work continuing by someone more capable than he. At least you would anticipate that that would be the case. But the second part of it, again, is the more troubling part. What if a man occupying one of those roles is able to do the work but isn't doing it? The person specifically says, if the person just stops doing the work, shouldn't they be asked to resign? Or shouldn't they resign? Well, the first part of that's easy. Should the person resign if he's not going to do the work? Absolutely. You need, in fact, to turn that over to someone who's going to do it. But the other question, suppose the person refuses to resign, but is not doing the work. Can that congregation then ask for his resignation and by and large demand it? Absolutely they can. Remember, the opening verse of this chapter, it was by the Holy Spirit's decree and the people's willing to follow them that they put him into office. If they're unwilling to follow him, he can't serve as an elder. You can only lead if people are willing to follow. If they are unwilling to follow, then they, for all practical purposes, can powerfully remove him from office. The elder, just like the deacon, is a person, an individual who has a great deal of work to do. Can that person be removed from office? Absolutely. You may appreciate, then as we close that slide, that all of these questions tonight have been very good questions. We've had five of them. There are a few more yet to come, and when the next installment comes, we will certainly begin to look at a few of them. I'd like to at least close the lesson like this. It's my hope that as we've looked at all these questions, we have at least had the opportunity to make personal application and to at least appreciate what is the will of God concerning His church and concerning behavior in it. As always, if I have misinterpreted the question... If I've taken it in a direction different than what you intended, I'm sorry for that. Just kindly rewrite the question, pointing me in the right direction, and we'll see what we can do differently and better next time. I would like to thank everyone who has submitted questions. I have quite a grouping of them yet to come, so I've got lots of questions yet to deal with. And we'll soon have another lesson where we'll turn our attention to questions and answers. The Gospel Plan of Salvation is such a wonderful thing. To give thought to the fact God loved you and I enough that He told us exactly what we need to do to have our sins forgiven and that we can live faithfully to that calling that we would have accepted. Tonight, in this grouping, in this assembly, there might be someone who has stepped aside from a faith that was once a faithful one. If we can help you tonight to make a statement of moving back to that faithful position. We want you to know how wonderfully we'd be happy to help. We pray to God on your behalf. Of course, you've got to repent and confess those things. And I hope we've all been encouraged to open the Word of God and let it challenge us in the ways of faithful Christian living. Tonight, if we could help in any way, won't you let us know how we can while together we stand and while we sing.